Well, good morning. Brian Hogan, our former worship pastor, <laughs> was in Canada this last week. I hope he found a job. <laughs> we come to a very interesting uh, section in God's Word today as we continue this series on the life of David. We're beginning to come to the end of this. And today, because of where we are, I want to talk about a subject that we don't frankly talk that much about, and it's the subject of failure, David's failure. So I want to talk about failure in my life, failure in your life, failure in our lives. We're way ahead of the game. If we see it, if we get it, we own it, and we don't pretend differently. But the problem with a subject like this in a culture like ours is that we happen to live in a culture that celebrates and loves success. I mean, parents raise their children to be successful. We celebrate success and we hate failure. Now, the Cubs may be an exception. Uh, we will find out if it's true that before the foundation of the world, they've been appointed to fail. See, maybe if that'll change. Now, what does this look like in our lives? What am I talking about when I'm talking about failure? Well, I'm uh, talking about our brokenness, our uh, uh, dysfunction. So for maybe for you, it's the unkind words you regularly speak. The anger that comes out of your mouth. You don't mean it, but it's just there, and it's chronic. It's always there. Or maybe it's lustful desires or ugly thoughts, things that go on inside of you. Or maybe it's laziness. One of the things that I find to be a real paradox in the church in North America is that our churches are full of really hardworking people that are often spiritually lazy, not going anywhere spiritually. Or, or maybe for you, your you, failure, and, and you know it, and it makes you feel like a failure, is you're a worrier. You just worry about everything. Uh, you're, you're, you're anxious, and, and you can't stop. Or, or, or maybe your failure, and these are less obvious, is you're just self-centered, or, you, or you're greedy, or, or man, you're envious. Maybe it's an addiction to an idol. Or maybe like David with Bathsheba and Uriah and then the murder of other soldiers, other, some of his uh, mighty men and some of his soldiers. You've done some terrible things in the past, man, terrible things, and, and you just can't shake it. It's always right there. And the crazy thing according to God's word is we can be all dressed up. We can be wildly successful professionally or financially or externally, but on the inside, internally, man, a moral, spiritual, relational wreck. There are only three ways, just three ways to respond to failure. When you fail, in other words, you have three options. Number one is you deny it. You sweep it under the rug, and you lie to yourself, and you tell yourself you're okay when you're not okay because the truth is too painful, self-denial. And so you really do have a drinking problem. You really aren't walking with the Lord, but, but you deny it. 
the second option, the second choice when it comes to failure is that you wallow in it. You wallow in guilt and shame. And you beat yourself up because you aren't a better mother or wife or this has happened. And you convince yourself because of what's gone on in your life, what's happening around you right now, that you know you're really pretty much worthless. You don't have much to contribute, that everybody just sort of, life is just passing you by. And, and the truth is you're depressed. Uh, for you, you know, the glass isn't half full, the glass isn't half empty. For you, there is no glass. You don't have hope. That's the second, the third choice, the third option is that you own it, that you confess it, that you admit it, and you bring it to God. You run into the light of God's presence because you know he'll never ever turn you away because at a deeper level, you know your standing with him is not based on your performance, but on his grace. Freely given to you in the perfect obedience and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Those are your three options. You deny it, you wallow in it, or you bring it to God and you repent of it. Now look at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. One of my favorite passages in the second half of the New Testament. Uh, certainly in the book of Hebrews. It's a passage I memorized years ago. I go back to it over and over. Uh, the writer says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That first line or two are, are life-changing for me because I look at my prone-to-wander sinful heart and what am I to do? Well, what I'm to do in light of Hebrews 4.16 is to bring it to God's throne because it's a throne note not of judgment for the believer. Jesus bore our judgment. It's a throne of grace. God's disposition towards me, regardless of what I've done, is always one of grace. So therefore, I approach him not with self-doubt, not with regret, but the word is with confidence. And I love that verse because it's so freeing. So liberating. I'm completely, totally accepted. Not because of anything in me, but because of Jesus Christ. And God's throne, well, God's throne is the throne of grace. You and I tend to think it's a throne of judgment because we see all this garbage in our lives. And so we distance ourselves from God. We don't have confidence. We have self-doubt. Passage says the opposite. Now, why in the world am I beginning this way? Why do I start this way? because today, uh, in this series on David, and this is the second to last week in our series, we'll end it next week, we come to the end, the last chapter, in the books of First and Second Samuel. And because it's the last chapter, it's a summary chapter of, of sorts. But instead of extolling and honoring David, one of the greatest men who's ever lived, this chapter is all about David's failure, arguably David's greatest failure in terms of damage. And so let's go there. Grab a Bible, it's page 325 or so, and the Bible's in front of you, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. And let's read, we're going to begin reading, not at the beginning, but in verse 10. 
David, King David, was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, his fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Let me just say parenthetically, talk to a guy after the last service. Had to go to jail for some mistakes he made in his life years ago. And he said this verse, this verse was one of the key verses that got me on, back on track with God. David's just incredibly honest as the king. Just incredibly honest here. I have done a foolish thing. Verse 11, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord came to Gad the prophet. David, seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So we got good news, bad news. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of time, the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba, Israelites, died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arana looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out, bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Now in the next couple of verses, David will buy this piece of property, uh, buy uh, some of his assets, some of his sledges and oak, uh, oxen, and then pick it up in verse 24. But the king replied to Arana, No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. If you want a life verse, this is a great one. So David brought the th bought the threshing floor and the oxen paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague. Well, the plague was stopped. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to address two questions. Uh, this first question is, why this judgment? Why is the judgment of God so severe? Why do we see so much judgment in the Bible? And the second question is, then why is this the last chapter? So I want to ask the question, why judgment? And then I want to ask the question, why does the story of David conclude with failure? 
So let me start with a judgment. There's three levels or three layers to this, three different things I wanna say about this. And first, and this is at the most basic, at at the broadest level, most of us as modern readers read a passage like this, God striking down 70,000 people, 70,000 of his own people, and we saw, and and most people today say, sorry, man, I can't believe in a God of such violence. Yeah, that's crazy. But, but uh, other people, other commentators, and, and I, I've been helped here by Pastor Tim Keller, I'm gonna borrow from him uh, this morning, uh, look at this and say, hey, wait a minute, hold the phone. If you go back and study the places in the Old Testament uh, where God uh, destroys people, what you discover is in almost all of those places, God is doing so because of their violence. Take Noah's flood. Genesis tells us that God brought the flood because the people of the earth were full of violence. Sodom and Gomorrah. The book of Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 16 and verse 50 uh, that these people in, in these cities were doing detestable things. Now we in the West look at this and say, Man, if you believe in the God of the Old Testament, who is a God of such violence and judgment, then shame on you because you're condoning violence. But the reality is just the opposite. God's judgment in the Bible doesn't lead to more violence. It stops violence. It's the antidote to violence. A Croatian evangelical author who had experienced the horror of ethnic cleansing among his people, lives in the Balkans, a lot of ethnic cleansing in in the Balkans, has written about this and said, violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that there is no God to take up the sword anymore. So violence is secretly nourished in the human heart because God no longer exists in the human mind. And he goes on and he says the only way to stem the cycle of violence is by a belief that God will judge, that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And when you are a victim of violence, say war, ethnic cleansing, or sexual abuse, It's understanding and believing that God will judge violence that keeps you from getting sucked into the cycle of violence. And this Croatian author goes on and says, if you don't believe this, then it's because you live a comfortable life. And you've never experienced violence. But if you're a victim, Uh, then you understand that everything in you screams for vengeance and justice. And it's only your belief in divine retribution, divine justice, that enables you to respond nonviolently to violence. Now all this to say... If you're informed and you read the Bible and you read deeper into the Bible, what you discover is that God isn't the source of human violence. God is the only solution. 
And that's what we see in the Old Testament. That's actually what makes sense philosophically, ideologically. And belief in God is the only power in all the universe that's strong enough to break the cycle of violence. Uh, So uh, that's the first thing to say at the broadest level. The second thing, now more specifically, here we get into our passage, is that this chapter teaches us that Israel and David's actions made this judgment necessary. Here in chapter 24, uh, David orders a census, we are told, of his fighting men. He enrolls his men into the military. Now, if you go back to the first couple verses of chapter 24, you learn, first of all, that God is angry. Then the second thing you see is that Joab, who's David's um, leading military officer, his commander-in-chief, vehemently protests to this action, says, David, don't do this. But David presses forward anyway. And what's interesting is elsewhere in the Old Testament, there's nothing wrong with taking a census. So taking the census is not inherently wrong. So we ask ourselves the question, well, what's up here? What's different? What's so bad about this that David says later, I have sinned greatly and 70,000 people die? And the answer is, well, we don't really know for sure because the Passage tells us what happened. It doesn't tell us why. Why this is wrong. Now, I'm going to come back to that in my third point here. But many people, many commentators who who study this, uh, surmise that the problem was Israel and David's misplaced confidence. Their misplaced sense of security. Prior to this, Israel's army was a volunteer army. Think 100% reserves. Uh, But here it changes. And apparently that's no longer good enough for David. So David enrolls his men into a standing army, a permanent army. Career soldiers to beef up Israel's security and to make Israel more battle-ready so Israel could more frequently attack and destroy. In other words, what's going on is that David crosses a line and creates a military culture, a, a, a society built on power and domination that would practice violence quickly against its neighbors, Hey, hey, look at the soldiers we have. They're permanent soldiers. Look at the thousands upon thousands. We have more than they do. We can take them down. We can take them out. Now, over and over, God had said in the Old Testament, don't put your trust in horses. Don't put your trust in chariots. But now Israel, led by David, is trusting in military might. And Israel was to be the light of the world, and now Israel is turning into a fighting machine. God judges Israel to keep Israel from becoming increasingly violent. It fits the Old Testament pattern. Now that brings me uh, to the application. As we think about this uh, judgment of God, the severity of the, the judgment of God. And as I mentioned just a 
a couple of minutes ago, we are told in this passage what's wrong. We are not told why it's wrong. That in and of itself is significant. And we think the reason it's wrong is because of David's misplaced confidence. And the reason this is significant is because we see over and over in the Old Testament, especially in the life of Abraham, that we are to obey God, we are to submit to God, even when we don't know why. Even when it doesn't make sense. But if you and I only obey God, submit to God, When we agree with God, that's really not obedience. What that is is agreement. Now, a couple of nights ago, Rhonda and I were having a dinner dinner with our kids and our our two grandkids. And we were at their apartment. And little Eliza, who's all of three and just absolutely the most adorable granddaughter on the planet... Um, a little Eliza's jumping on the couch. She's flopping around. And, you know, the great thing about being a grandparent is you can just sit there and watch. <laughs> and, and so uh, Eliza moves, and she moves to one of the uh, uh, tables next to the couch, and, and she grabs a Bible, and it's either Shannon or Luke's Bible, Mom and Dad's Bible. I, I don't know. And, and she grabs the Bible and sits down and, and opens it up. And one of the parents uh, says, hey, Eliza, uh, don't, don't play with the Bible. And, and Eliza kind of looks at them like, why can't I play with the Bible? And so she's opening the Bible, and, and she's turning a couple pages, and this all happens in just a ma- matter of seconds. You know how it is with three-year-old, and sure enough, uh, Psalm 23 gets ripped right out of the Bible. Now, I don't know if it was Psalm 23, but it was something in the middle of the Bible. Just ripped. Now, I got a major theological question for you. Why do parents tell three-year-olds what to do without always telling them why they need to do it? Answer, because they're three. They're three. And because moms and dads know if we don't teach our kids how to obey, they will destroy things and they may die. Now, the same is true with an infinite God. Are you tracking? Let me give you a a couple examples. The Bible has a whole lot to say about sex. And gender that we in the West find offensive, if not difficult. Because we in the the West, unlike traditional cultures, uh, uh, value equality and individuality and equal rights. So we come to these uh, teachings in in the Bible, and it's like, what? The Bible has a lot to say about generosity, uh, about giving. Uh, When you piece the Old Testament and the New Testament together, uh, the Bible seems to indicate that a baseline for a follower of Christ is to give at least 10% of their wealth 
to the local church, uh, to people that are poor, to, to missions organizations to support the global cause of Christ. Yet we simply ignore that today in North America. Not just because we're greedy, but because we're fearful because our money is our security. Uh, the Bible tells us to unconditionally love people. And nowhere is that more important than in marriage, but nowhere is that often more absent than in marriages because we think, man, if I'm going to do that, I'm just going to be taken advantage of. Uh, and so uh, our obedience is selective, and, and if we don't, if God tells us what to do, but we don't understand why, or we don't necessarily agree with the why, then uh, we only obey God when we agree with God, and at the end of the day, that's not obedience, it's just agreement, and the result is good people can die. And cultures erode. And so do families. So why judgment here? Why this severe judgment, 70,000 people? Because God judges violence in the Bible. Because just maybe Israel's heading towards more violence, a more violent posture. But third, God doesn't always tell us why. He doesn't always tell us why. Now, let me go on. Let me go to this second question, uh, this question of why in the world is this passage here? I mean, we're, we're lining out the life of one of the greatest men that has ever lived. And the concluding chapter in this primary document, this historical document, First and Second Samuel, a chapter about David's failure. Why? I'll give you the short answer and then we'll, we'll flesh it out. And the short answer is to show us that the good king, the ideal king, is a repentant king. The good man, the good woman, the good husband, the good father, good wife, the good mother, not a perfect husband, wife, mother, or father, but a repentant person. Uh, someone who understands that God's throne is the throne of grace and approaches life and that throne with confidence. In other words, th this passage is here to show us that David chose the third option. He didn't deny it. He didn't wallow in it. He repented. So look, for example, let, let's pick up this story. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13. What's going on here is, is just very curious, interesting. God sends the prophet Gad to David to tell David that God's judgment is going to come in one of three forms, and David gets to pick. This is the only place in the Bible, anything like where you get to pick your poison. But what's interesting is if you think about it, regardless of which one of these David chooses, uh, each of them will end um, Israel's uh, apparent move to imperialism. I mean, Israel's going to take it on the chin. So, for example, famine back then was recession. The major surrender, loss of wealth, national wealth. 
individual wealth. Israel was going to become in debt to nations around them. Uh, but if David didn't choose that and if David chose war, then what was going to happen is thousands upon thousands of his soldiers would probably get killed. Lives would be lost. Military weakened. Imperialism taken on the chin. So David chooses the third option. Saying, I don't want to fall into the hands of men. I want to lean into God's mercy. And 70,000, 70,000 people die. Uh, but then, while this plague is going on, something very interesting happens in verse 16. When the angel's hand is stretched out and the angel is about to wipe out Jerusalem, which will become the capital uh, uh, of Israel, in the exact same place, the angel is standing in the exact same place, by the way, where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac. The angel is standing in the exact same place where David's son Solomon will build the temple. When the angel has his hand stretched out and he's about to assault Jerusalem and thousands more are, are, are going to die, God says, enough, stop. And Jerusalem is spared. And verse 16 means mercy triumphs over judgment. Grace always melts the snow and ice of sin. Now we've got to ask the question, why? I mean, why, why did God do this? God didn't spare Solomon, King Solomon. Why here is God sparing David and David's people? Why does such grace surround David in a way it didn't surround Solomon? And here we come to why Samuel ends Samuel with this chapter. And there are three answers. And the first is that David is repentant. To elevate the value of repentance on the heels of failure. So in verse 10, look at verse 10. When David says, I have greatly sinned or I have sinned greatly, we are also told at the beginning of this verse that David was conscious stricken. In the Hebrew, it's literally his heart smote him. Uh, so David is, is all turned up on the inside. Now if you go back to chapter 12, uh, following David's um, adultery and then his murder, like most of us, David didn't confess that until he was caught, until Nathan the prophet came to him about a year later. But here, now 12 chapters later, at the end of 2 Samuel, David confesses a sin without getting caught. He confesses it on his own. He confesses it before the prophet comes to him because his heart was killing him. Do you know what this is? This is progress. It's spiritual growth on David's part. Because the more spiritually mature you are, the more quickly and the more frequently you're going to confess your sin and repent. The good king is the repentant king. The good husband 
is a husband that will own it, admit it, confess us, and repent and turn from it. The good leader, the good elder, same thing. And so what we have is a big contrast here between spiritual immaturity and spiritual maturity. The spiritually immature person thinks that my, um, my morality, my behavior is the basis of my standing before God. And so when the spiritually immature fails, drops the ball, experiences brokenness and sin, creates havoc in a situation or havoc among relationships, the tendency is to push it away because it creates too much psychological upheaval. Because the spiritually immature person can't deal with it because the spiritually immature person's ego and confidence is tied to their behavior. So we deny and we wallow in it. But spiritual maturity on the other hand, and that's what we're seeing here, uh, means this side of the cross, you believe in the gospel. You believe that your heart is prone to wander. You understand that you are a sinner and you fail. And you have been saved by grace. And the deeper you go into that grace, the more you grow in your understanding of God's grace. And that grace becomes a source of your identity. The more quickly, the more freely, the more frequently you will repent. Because you get that your failure doesn't mean you're coming apart. It means in your, your failure and your repentance that God is putting you back together. And, and, and so joy. Joy is found not in the absence of failure. But in the willingness to own it and to repent. Uh, relationships, uh, healthy marriages, healthy uh, Friendships. Uh, not a function of the absence of failure, uh, but the willingness to admit uh, brokenness and, and sin and, and to repent. And this is what enables you to accept criticism rather than to be so defensive and always deny it and get angry at people. And somebody criticizes you and says, man, you really blew this. And, and, and you respond and, and, and you almost knock them over when you say this. You know, you're absolutely right. I totally blew it. And the reality is I'm much worse. Who says that? David. I have greatly sinned. And it doesn't matter if this is how my biography is going to end. Because the good king is the repentant king. The second thing we see is that David abandons his idol. God extends grace because David is willing to abandon his idol and cast himself on God's mercy. Look at verse 14. David's idol power, military might, 
And in verse 14, he demonstrates a theological sophistication because he articulates that on the one hand, he understands God is completely holy and therefore must judge sin. And on the other hand, he understands that God is totally merciful and wants to forgive sin. And he lives with that tension. God is holy, God is merciful, God is uh, just, uh, uh, God is loving. But then he goes on and he understands that only in God will he find mercy. Now, we live in a world today that really disses the Bible. You believe the Bible? And I want to tell you here, right here, right now, the Bible demonstrates its brilliance. Because according to the Bible, idols aren't real. An idol can't die for you to forgive you. And if you fail your idol, and we all have idols, and like a demanding parent or like a demanding boss, those idols will punish you. So, for example, make your family an idol. And it will curse you. Because your family will never be perfect. You make your uh, job your God. And it will show you no mercy. It can't die for you. David knew at the core of his being that only God was merciful and that God's mercy always triumphs over judgment. Man, if I'm going to fall and I'm about to fall, let me fall into the hands of God for his mercy is great. Third, Third reason David was a recipient of grace or experienced grace, I should say, is that David here offers himself as a substitute. Look at verse 17. David says, in effect, punish me, not them. Kill me, not them. Smite the shepherd so that the sheep can go free. And God says, in effect, David, you got the concept right. There has to be substitution, but I want you to offer animals, not yourself. And here we are on literally holy ground at this threshing floor. The book of Hebrews tells us the blood of animals can't atone for sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can. But David's statement in verse 17 and then David's sacrifice of the animals on the very site that would become the temple for where over the centuries thousands and thousands of animals were sacrificed, all points here to the coming son of David, to the ideal David, to Jesus Christ, who will die on the cross for our sins. So when David says, let your hand fall on me, David is pointing to Jesus. And if you back up a verse, in verse 16, there's one word. might be translated relented. In the NIV here, it's translated grieved. In, in the Hebrew, it often can mean weeps. God is grieved. We're told God weeps. God weeps right here at this very spot where Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac where the people of Jerusalem were almost wiped out, where Solomon will, will build the temple. And one day, 
in this city, the city of Jerusalem, uh, Jesus Christ will be sacrificed. God sees the big picture, taking all this sin, uh, our, our sin, our brokenness, our dysfunction, and the need for a sacrifice that will eventually lead to the sacrifice of his son. We read God is grieved, God weeps. God is not grouchy, grumpy. God grieves over our sin. And how can you not, how can you not trust the one who loves you this much? He's got your back. He sent his son to die for you. And one well-known author one time said that the tears of God are the meaning to history. The tears of God are the centerpiece of the Christian life. Because we are sheep loved by a shepherd that was killed for us. And God grieves. So failure in a culture of success, is inevitable. It's part of the fall. We have three choices. We deny it, we wallow in it, or we confess it, admit it, bring it to God and repent of it. And it's repentance that is the fruit of grace, and it's repentance that opens the door to more grace, and spiritual maturity, spiritual greatness here, and this is why the chapter ends this way, is never a function of competence or, or capacity. It's not, it's not a function of uh, your appearance. It's a function of our brokenness and our humility before a living God as we acknowledge we are sinful, fallen people desperately in need of grace. And we live grace-oriented lives because we understand our identity and our significance is not tied to our performance, but to the one that would send his son to die on the cross for our sins. Amen? Let's pray, and then let's worship. So God... As we come to you now, speak to us. Speak to us and open our eyes that we might hear from you and we might worship you out of thanksgiving for your grace and your mercy and your love and your power. Help us to understand that good people are repentant people. Amen.